I greet each of, you, each of you in the name of the Lord this morning. Rose and I feel blessed to have the privilege to be here and worship with you again. Uh, I always enjoy coming here. I know uh, I was thinking recently about the, the first time that we came back to this community after we moved out, got married and moved to Iowa, and I remember how excited I was. I'm not sure if I have quite that same excitement, but, but I do very, really enjoy being here and visiting. There's, like they said, there's been a lot of water over the dam in 42 years, and there's a lot of faces that weren't here then, but there's a lot of familiar faces as well, as well as family. But most of all, I sense the same spirit here, and I'm just blessed to, to be here. Someone asked me when I was here last, how long that's been, and uh, I don't remember. Now, there may be several reasons for that. One of them is because it's been a while. The other reason I think all the seniors would understand. But I, I know it's been a while, but we're just glad to be here again this morning. A number of years ago, there was a bumper sticker. I don't know if I saw it a lot. I'm not sure it was really popular, but I think I saw it several times. It said, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. I want you to think about that. Uh, how do you respond to that? How does that sit with you? Is that good theology, or is there, is there a word or two in there that you have a problem with? Or Think about that a little bit, and I'll get some response from you later. We're looking at Titus chapter 2 this morning, but I'd like to look back, look further into the context, even in chapter 1, before, we, before what we read this morning. But Paul is telling Titus, or telling what he already knows, but he's encouraging him to be faithful in the midst of false teachers and deceivers of that time, seen to be especially prevalent there in the island of Crete. Some of them were, were simply, uh, how would you say, maybe sort of a mixture of paganism, Christianity, with the, with the nationals there. Also, there were the Judaizers there. But he, he ends in chapter 1, verse 16. He said, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. And then he says, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Now, I find it interesting here. You know, he, Paul is telling Titus, you know, you, this, this is a context. This is the way the people are there, but, and, and they're deceivers. But I want you to speak sound doctrine. And it's interesting that the sound doctrine is not some sort of abstract theology. But it's a very practical Christian living that he outlines here. He speaks to the old men, the older men. He speaks to the aged women. He speaks to the young women. He speaks to the young men. And he speaks to the servants and tells them, how God wants him to live. But there's something, something even bigger here in a sense. Not just what God wants to see in you, that not as the way you live is not being an end in itself, but there's something larger here. Notice in verse 5, it says to be discreet, speaking to the young women, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. And in verse 8, Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that they of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Then he's speaking to the servants, slaves actually, how they should respond to their masters. And he says to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining or not stealing, showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God in all things. So the concern is here with the living right, but the purpose is that that the word of God, the name of God be not blasphemed, and that the doct- but rather the doctrine of God is adorned. The doctrine of God, God himself being made attractive 
by the way we live. People being drawn to God by our lives. That's what's at stake here. The glory of God, the reputation of God. David in Psalm 23, in that well-known uh, shepherd's psalm, he says, uh, Lead me in the paths of righteousness for my name's sake. No, for thy name's sake. We walk in the paths of righteousness for God's name's sake. And so reading further, I'd like to read again uh, verse uh, 11 through 17. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. I've titled the message, Living Right by the Grace of God. We had some discussion of the grace of God in our Sunday school class. We sang about the grace of God. So we'll be speaking further of the grace of God. It says, the grace of God bringeth salvation. And that has appeared to all men. Back to the bumper sticker. Anyone have any uh, question about that or anything there that didn't quite resonate with you? Anyone care to respond to that? Is there a word in there that you might have a problem with? Just. So why, Dave? What's the problem with just? It's what? Yes, yes. It's more than being just forgiven. Somehow the word just does not fit with forgiven. It's in, like they say, an oxymoron. It does not fit. Because the price of forgiveness is huge. We're redeemed through the blood of Christ. We're not just forgiven in the sense of, well, just kind of merely forgiven. That's, that's huge for us. There's something else there about the word just that I have a bit of a problem with. Anyone, any other ideas? Just forgiven. Is that really all we get out of it? Sounds too casual, okay. But do we have more than just forgiveness? Yes, of course we do. And, and I, I hope I'm understood. I'm certainly not wanting to minimize the importance of that forgiveness. The grace of God in bringing us forgiveness. I, uh, I think in growing up as a good little beachy boy, sometimes it took me kind of long to catch it. And thank God's still working on me. To understand just what I was without Christ and what I would be and how much I still need him. I still need that forgiveness, not just forgiven. But thinking further, we're not just forgiven. There's so much more that he gives us with that. And notice here, again, the grace of God bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. And so there's, I don't know if you, can, if you can break down the grace of God into two aspects, but there seem to be sort of two aspects to the grace of God. One of them is the saving grace, and then it's also the ongoing work of grace in our lives. I, I heard a message that uh, he talked about the, the grace of God is often referred to as un, the, uh, slip my mind now, but anyhow, the, the unmerited favor of God. Well, it is that. It certainly is that. But it's, that, and it's, but it's an ongoing work in our lives. 
And uh, I, think the, I think it's the Vines Dictionary that gives the def- definition of grace as the divine influence on the heart. The divine influence on the heart. So there's a sense in which the grace of God as we experience it in salvation, in that forgiveness, is just the beginning. But it's the divine influence on the heart. Verse 12. Teaching us, and this is still referring to grace. Teaching us. ESV says training us. A little stronger word there. That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So that grace not only teaches us, but it also empowers us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And it helps us to do what is not humanly possible. And I, you know, it seems many people today profess to know God, but somehow in works they deny Him. They're just forgiven, as it were, and, and maybe just kind of satisfied with that. And not really living in the grace of God to live above sin, to live in the power of God. And I have to think of, uh, you know, Second Peter, I think it is, where in chapter 1, I don't know which verse it is, it says that through the knowledge of God, we are given all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So it's not just the beginning, not just, the, not just forgiveness, but all things that pertain to ongoing life and godliness. And I, I love the, the verse in uh, Romans chapter 8, where it says that he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Because if God loved you so much that he didn't spare his son, won't he also freely give you what you need to live out the Christian life, what you need to really be a follower of Jesus, what you need to, to fulfill the calling that he's given you, what you need to really be a servant in the kingdom of God? He who saved you is also going to give you all that. Of course, you have to accept it and avail yourself of it. There's a number of scriptures that would refer to what we think of as saving grace. For example, Acts 15 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Ephesians 4, 8, very well-known verse. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And there's a number of scriptures that could refer to either. And again, we don't want to try to split hairs here, but you know, it seems to refer to both the saving grace that we experience and also the ongoing grace, that ongoing work in our lives. But the majority of New Testament references to grace, a vast majority refer to his ongoing work in our lives. Teaching and training us more and more into what he calls us to be and giving us the power to do that, to live in victory over sin. I think that's the primary emphasis of grace in the New Testament, the power to live as God wants us to live because we don't, we don't have, yeah, we need to make right choices, but we don't have it within ourselves to live the way God wants us to live. It's a result of his grace in our lives. And it's important that we understand that grace, that we claim it and to live it. And sometimes that's, that's the hard part, you know, to bring that grace into our daily choices rather than just thinking, well, this is, this is the way I am and this is the way I will be, because I'm still in the flesh. I've still the flesh to contend with, and so, you know, I'm that old man to contend with, and so, you know, God's grace covers where I fail. And that's, that's true. I think God's grace, in a sense, does cover where we fail. However, I think, there, I think there can come a point where we, in a sense, give up, or we're, we're satisfied. We're satisfied to live in failure, to live in defeat. And that's a dangerous position to be in. But there's more... A number of examples of 
in the New Testament of expressing God's grace for our lives ongoing. Paul starts all of his epistles except one with a greeting of grace. Typically, grace and peace be unto you. And, and he ends with grace be with you. If, if you check it out, that's, that's typical. And then Peter and John do the same, except Peter even says, grace be multiplied unto you. Remember that they were writing to Christians. They weren't writing to sinners, inviting them to come and experience the grace of God and salvation. They were writing to Christians who had already experienced salvation, but they were wishing them, praying for them, an ongoing work of grace, experience of grace in their lives. Acts 4.33, with great power gave the apostles witness, and great grace came upon them all. And in uh, Acts 20, we have the account of how um, Paul met with the elders at Ephesus. And he said that, uh, he said, it's not of our, I'm sorry, he said that I commend you to the grace of God as he parted from them. Several other verses. Uh, why don't you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And these are just a few of the, of the many verses referring to the grace of God, but I just want to point several out here. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Wait a minute. I'm sorry, I'm in Romans chapter 3. No wonder it didn't make sense to you. I heard a lot of paging there. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship. And notice what the grace is for. For obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name. So it's by the grace of God that we can be obedient to God. We don't have that ability of ourselves. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. First Corinthians 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take it heed how he buildeth thereupon. And Paul says in another place that by the grace of God I am what I am. But when you consider the work of Paul and what God did through him, it was incredible. God gave Paul grace to lay the foundation. For Christianity, we even, you know, our, what we know of Christ goes back to Paul's work there in Europe and Asia. And uh, there was one occasion, I think it was in Ephesus, had been in Ephesus two years or three years and someone said, he is turning this city upside down. Two or three years in a pagan city, and he was turning it upside down. Right side up, actually. But all that, you know, being by the grace of God. That of helping him to lay the foundation. And 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace was bestowed upon me, that his, but his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Just simply that grace of 
you know, laboring, working, empowering the grace of God. The grace of God is not just a, a motherly hug, as it were, that picks us up when we fall and soothes us over our little ouchies. It can certainly do that as needed, but it's much more than that. It helps us to rise above falling and getting hurt over and over again. So how does that divine influence on the heart affect my life? How does it affect your life? How much difference does it really make? And I had to ask myself, do I really believe that God's grace is intended for and able to change my selfish values into a focus on Jesus? And that's something God's still working on in me. We are just naturally selfish, and it doesn't go away when we're born again. It's just something that God keeps working on, for us, for me at least. Do I believe that God's grace can, can do that ongoing work to diminish my selfishness and help me to focus more on Jesus? Do I believe that God's grace can bring me through trying circumstances? We all know what that is. For some, it's very, very difficult circumstances. Do I believe that God's grace can show me my sinful actions and attitudes that need changing and, and give the grace to come to him in repentance and confession? And not only what needs changing and repent, but that, that he can actually change it and help me to a point of victory. And I realize sometimes that, you know, that takes some time and we struggle at times. But believing that God's grace can bring us through that to a point of victory no matter how deep that, that habit or that groove is worn. Can he, give, can he give us grace when maybe business is a little slow? Our business was slow this summer, and it was a test. You know, grace to, uh, how would you say, to be content and to be trusting, even in those kind of circumstances. Does he give me grace to deal with, in a Christ-like way, with a, a, an unruly or an unhandy customer? Those of you who are in business know what that's like. But, you know, he, he wants to give us grace to be able to relate to those people in a Christ-like way. And if you are a parent, do you believe that God can give you the sufficient grace and wisdom to work with that strong-willed child, as well as simply to be a parent for, for all your children? And in church work, does God give the needed love and wisdom to work through difficult questions and issues in the church? I believe God's grace is there for us. We need to avail ourselves of it. Back to verse 12 in Titus. Repeating verse 11, For the grace that, appears, that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. I think righteously and godly, um, what would you say? I think we understand that, simply living right according to God's word. What about soberly? And I find it interesting how often this comes up in the book of Titus. In chapter 1, he talks about the need for church leaders, those, those elders that Titus would be ordaining, for them to be sober. In chapter 2, in the verses before this, in, in reference to all four of the groups, young men, old men, old women, young men, young women, refers to being sober. What does it mean to be sober? Walking around with a long face like a mule? I don't think so, because we're also called to live with joy. How can we live with joy and yet in the proper sobriety, as it were? Um, Barnes, I think it's Barnes' commentary that defines it, a person of a sound mind. One who follows sound reason, 
who is, under the, who is not under the control of passion. The exercise of self-restraint that governs all passions and desires, enabling the believer to be conformed to the image of Christ. The kind of self-restraint governing those passions and desires that enables us to be conformed to Christ. Um, actions governed by reason, sound thinking, and then reason governed by the Spirit of God. Actions governed by reason, reason governed by the Spirit of God. I think uh, sobriety, being sober, is opposite of being frivolous and careless. It's opposite of doing what comes naturally at the moment or what feels best. It's the opposite of that. I think it's also a sense of responsibility, realizing that life is more than a big party, even though I believe God made life to enjoy and he gives us a lot of pleasures. And, and I, you know, we, we try to, we, there's a balance there. We're to enjoy life, and yet life is not just a big party. And I think we, you know, we need a sense of responsibility and realizing with that that there's consequences for our actions and attitudes. That's so, living soberly as well, both in this life and in eternity. And so are we thinking soberly about how God wants to use us in his kingdom work? Or are we just here to enjoy the party, as it were? We have biblical examples of, of men who did not think soberly. Um, Esau, for example, he was not thinking soberly when he sold his birthright to Isaac. He just was not thinking ahead. He didn't think well. He didn't think soberly. David was certainly not thinking soberly in his affair with Bathsheba. But then an example, a tremendous example of a man who thought soberly, I think, is Moses. It says that he did not, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He goes on further to say that, that he esteemed the riches of Christ to be a greater treasure than the pleasures of Egypt. He was thinking soberly. He was thinking ahead. He was thinking in a godly way. And so, you know, sometimes we need to say no to our own desires to give priority to our children, or for the sake of example, or for the sake of long-range effect. We need to think in light of 20 years down the road, 50 years down the road, Eli and Lot. The priests Eli and Lot both failed to do that, and I think we know the consequences in their families. Living soberly is recognizing it's not about me. Living soberly changes our values by the grace of God. Always, it's also reminding us that we won't be here always. Now, I, I admit, I'll have to be honest and admit that leaving this world is not really on my mind a lot. But I'll also say it's on my mind more than it was when I was 20 years old. And, you know, we, we recognize that things change. Things are not like they used to be. That's why uh, I have drove a minivan for many years. Uh, it's really nice for the family, but I keep on driving a minivan. It's a little easier to get in and out. That's why people drive, older people drive minivans and crossovers, in case you wonder. But, uh, yeah, things do change. And, and it's sobering when we realize where we're at. You know, even if I live, even if I live to be as old as my mother... Uh, I've already lived two-thirds of my life. And I find that sobering. You know, what have I done with that? And also, just simply, we're reminded in, in Scripture that we need to endure to the end. We need to make our calling and election sure. You know, as a child of God, uh, with the assurance that he's given me, I don't find these thoughts disturbing. You know, endure to the end. Be careful you're not deceived. But I do find them sobering. I have to think about it. 
realize that, yes, there is that possibility of deception. There is that possibility of not enduring. And that there will also be Christians, people who call themselves Christians, who will hear these words, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. I cannot imagine the, the, the horrible, eternal disappointment that that must be. And I think living, living soberly also is, gives us a concern for the eternal well-being of others. Verse 13, related to this. Looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have hope in his glorious appearing. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If in this life only we had hope in Christ, we would be of all men most miserable. We have hope in the one who gave himself for us. Verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That is really our hope. That is our only hope. And why did he give himself? Because we needed to be redeemed. We needed to be ransomed, as it were, from the grip of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, who in a sense took over uh, when, in a big way when, when Adam and Eve fell. And we need to be redeemed from that power, from that tendency. We're not born sinners, but we're certainly born with a tendency to sin, and we have all sinned. We need to be redeemed from that, not only forgiven, but redeemed from that, that power, that grip on us, so that we can live above sin. That's the grace of God. This says, he purifies to himself a peculiar people. Purifies, I think that has both in the sense of an initial experience of sanctification when we come to Christ, but also an ongoing experience of sanctification. Transformed by the renewing of the mind, as it says in Romans 12, verse 2. Galatians 4, 9, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. So we are, he, he's given himself for us to purify unto himself. And then it says a peculiar people. Now, I don't know, do you, do you all like to be labeled peculiar? It says we're a peculiar people. I think our problem is the definition of the word as we generally use it. In fact, uh, Webster gives a number of meanings, one of them being simply queer and eccentric. And that's kind of the way we tend to use the word peculiar. But the scriptural meaning is more like another definition that, that Webster gives says different from the usual or normal, special. I think that's, that's the biblical meaning. And it's used in uh, Deuteronomy uh, where God calls them a special people. It has the same idea. You're a special people, a chosen people to myself. First Peter 2 verse 9, a peculiar people, a holy nation. That's who we are. And so, um, you know, it says different from the usual or the normal. And that's, that's the way it's used in the scripture. It's in the sense that we're different from usual or normal. Not only different, but beyond the usual. Above normal. Abnormal, if you please. Maybe we wouldn't quite say it in that way. But above normal, at least. So I guess that is abnormal in the way the world would view it. But because we are abnormal, then we will sometimes be viewed perhaps as queer or eccentric. But because we are living above normal... We will not have the typical response when someone wrongs us or tries to take advantage of us. Again, as the grace of God works in our lives, we can, we can rise above having the typical response. When faced with the death of a loved one, yes, there, can be, there may be intense grieving, which is beyond what I understand. But there's not need to be a hopeless despair. It's, a, it's not the normal response, in a sense. 
when faced with the opportunity to make good money at someone else's expense, what's our response? Is it above normal? Or is it just the normal response? When coarse jokes are being told. When the weather's inconvenient. I went to Booth's Corner with Uncle Chris for a number of years. No, I say a number of years. At least one fall, maybe two, uh, when I was about 14. And... Uh, Sometime, and our, our booth, our stand was set up outside. We weren't inside the building. And sometimes the weather wasn't all that nice. Maybe we even had to set up a canopy. And people would come around and complain about the weather. That's the normal. Uncle Chris's response was above normal. He would inevitably say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I was always challenged by that. That's, that's an abnormal response. <laughs> but... But we should be responding with, in that way, and we may not need to quote the verse necessarily, but a different response to the weather than what people around us tend to have. Because we are peculiar people who are redeemed and are being purified, and then we are also zealous of good works. Notice that. A peculiar people, zealous of good works. And rather than taking the attitude, well, you know, I know I'm not growing as I should, but at least I'm, I'm doing as well as some others in the church, and, and I think my name is in the book of life, and that, that's what really matters. Is that all that we've been redeemed to? No. I don't think God wants us to be satisfied with where we are. He doesn't want us to be mediocre, but rather to be zealous of good works. Zealous implies a, a deep desire and a motivation to let my light Shine before men, as it says in Matthew 5, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, we might, we might ra- raise the question, why do we need to be told to be zealous of good works? Doesn't that come naturally for a child of God who's living in his grace? You know, when we say that we're not saved by our works, but our good works are the result of our salvation, so wouldn't we just naturally be zealous of good works? In fact, I uh, used the illustration already that, that faith and works is a little bit like a dog. A dog does not bark to become a dog, but it barks because it is a dog. And so we don't do good works to become Christians, but we do good works because we are Christians. But again, the question, so why do we need to talk about being zealous about good works? Why do we need to talk about denying worldly lusts? And doesn't the grace of God come to us as a free gift on a platter and we just take it and somehow it automatically applies to every situation we face? I wish. It doesn't seem to work that way. No. God's grace does teach us what is right, what is right, as it says here. And it does give us a certain a motivation and an ability to do what's right, which we just wouldn't have otherwise. But we still have choices to make, don't we? We still have choices to make. And it's, you know, it's, it's the grace of God through the Spirit of God that convicts us, that shows us any action or attitude that's not conformed to the Spirit of Christ. But it's our choice if we're going to listen or not. And it seems so often God speaks to us through other people, and sometimes that makes us harder for us to listen. We might think, well, you know, he didn't come to me in the right spirit, or somebody else should have come to me first, or, uh, you know, I'm doing as well as he is. If we have that kind of response then we're not, we're not living by grace. We're not, we're not taking the grace of God, availing ourselves of the grace of God to really listen to God and to change. Listen to him. If there's sin there, something that really needs to be changed, you bring it to him in, in repentance and confession. Confess to others if needed. If we fail to do that, we are spurning 
the grace of God. I'd like to read yet in Titus 3, he goes on to describe some of those good works. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish and disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now notice the emphasis on the grace of God, especially the saving grace and the mercy of God in these next verses. Verse 4, But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, if we stop there and don't read verse 8, it's a little bit like, uh, it's been a couple of years ago, I attended a, a local funeral of a, a dear Christian lady that I think really was living for the Lord and, uh, and loved the Lord. But the pastor, in, in the brief message that he had, he read verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He stopped there. Some people don't like that next verse. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And so if we were to stop without reading verse 8, that's a little bit like reading Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, and not reading verse 10. Verse 8, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. I find it hard to see how someone could read the book of Titus and conclude that works did not matter or that somehow our security in Christ even can be maintained without them. Going back to verse 15. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. And I think that's, that's Paul's admonition to Titus, the elder. But it's not only for ministers, it's for all of us. To, to be able to speak, exhort, and rebuke, and let no man despise thee. But there's opposition today to speaking and exhorting and rebuking with biblical truth. One of the ways that that opposition comes is in the accusation of legalism. And if you preach the importance of good works, or that they may have something to do with our salvation in the end, that's legalism. And, and why would you have a verse like this up here? He has showed thee, a man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Looks like there's some things required, doesn't it? You could have had, for by grace are you saved through faith, or something like that. But this is very appropriate. There are some things that are required. But I would say, and I think you would agree, that we plain people may have a tendency toward legalism. And simply that of, you know, when we depend on our good works to save us, doing the right things, wearing the right things, you know, doing everything just right, when we depend on that to save us, rather than the finished work of Christ and his life within us, then that is legalism. But biblical obedience is not legalism. It is the outworking of God's grace in our lives. I think the real legalism of our day is the concept that when I accept Christ, 
um, somehow there's, and somehow his righteousness is transferred to my account in heaven in sort of a legal transaction. And so now God sees the righteousness of Christ regardless of what, what's happening in my life. What I do doesn't, doesn't really matter because the righteousness of Christ is there on my account. That's legalism. That's living by the letter of the law rather than by the spirit of the law. So the question also we have this morning, trying to uh, make this practical, you know, how do we appropriate grace or live in that grace? And I'd like to suggest this morning that much of our experience of the grace of God comes through the life of the church. Worship, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, learning, blessing each other. And so I, I think it's very important if we want to live in the grace of God that we really plug into the church. That we, we plug in the sense that we, have a, we, have, we give and we take. That's, that's, what, that's the way it's designed, that we give and we receive. As it says in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, that, that the, the body is, is joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working the measure of every part. And I think as we think of our, the cells in our body, if I understand it right, each cell is both giving and receiving. Each one is a very vital part of what's happening. So yes, I think so much of the grace of God comes to us through the life of the church. And also it's very, very personal, personal meditation on the word, spending time with God in prayer. Uh, remember that what we feed is what grows. We feed the spirit, if we feed, the, yeah, if we feed our spirits with the things of God, that's what grows. And so much is simply in our daily choices. Are we making godly choices? Are we choosing godly values? God gives us grace to obey him. And as we do that, as we obey, we, we grow in grace. And when he wants to correct us, even through other people, you know, our response to that is sort of determining, are we going to grow? Are we going to move forward? Are we going to take a step backward? And again, if, if we're living in sin, if we're covering sin in any way, you know, God will give the grace and the humility to be willing to expose that and have the church rally around us and move forward. May God help us to avail ourselves of his grace. And I can testify this morning, I think you know, God has been doing a work of grace in my heart, and I want to encourage you. you know, if you feel that you've just been sort of a mediocre Christian, or one that is constantly struggling, you don't need to be there. And I, I testify that by the grace of God, there's, there's hope for you. You can live in victory. You can live passionately. You can be focused on Jesus Christ rather than on yourself. But again, our own merits, our own abilities, our own resources, that's not possible. But it is possible by the grace of God, and that's what he wants for every one of us. Let's read verses 11 to 13 again. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we come to prayer, I'm going to spend a little time, maybe a minute or so, in silence, doing this because I know very well how it is. To hear God's word and, and it speaks perhaps, but, but then it's easy to forget it. So I, I want you to think about, you know, 
how are you experiencing God's grace in your life? Or perhaps where you have not experienced God's grace. Just talk to God a little bit about that before we continue in prayer. Let's kneel for prayer. Dear Father, we just want to thank you this morning for your grace that is given us through Jesus Christ. That grace that saves us, that grace that extends forgiveness to us. In spite of all the, in spite of all the wrongs that we have done against you, in spite of the way we've, we've turned our back, in spite of those times where we've gone our own way and slapped you in the face, Father, you give grace. You're forgiven. We thank you for that ongoing grace in our hearts and lives, that that divine influence on the heart that gives us the motivation and the power to live right, to live above sin, to come rise out of defeat, to give a, a response that is above normal. It's different from the world around us. So we thank you for that grace, and I pray you would help each of us to live in that. Help us as you, as you bring to us, as your grace shows us things in our lives that need changing, that we would be willing to do that or shows us things that are, that, uh, well, it's just various times when we are faced with choices and help us to make the right choices. So we commit ourselves to you. I just thank you for this congregation, and I just pray that each one could experience your grace in a real way. In Jesus' name, amen.